Welcome to the Pardes Parsha Podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This week's episode features Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld on Parshat Kitisa. To listen to the most recent episode of the Parsha Podcast and to find more exciting Torah content from Pardes, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Professor Ziva Hassenfeld and Rabbi Brent Spodek. Hi, Brent. So nice to see you. This is uh, Ziva Hassenfeld, and uh, I am sitting with my dear friend and Havruta, Rabbi Brent. How are you? Thank God. I am doing okay. I am delighted to get to learn with you again. And even though we're we're used to technology, the fact that I can connect with you and do this with you in Boston and me in New Zealand is mind-blowing, but delightful. Absolutely mind-blowing and beautiful. Um, well, I am so happy to be learning with you because in this week's Parsha, we get, of course, we learn about Chet HaEgel, the sin of the golden calf, and there's a lot to talk about there, but I really want to focus on Aaron, uh, Moshe's okay. older brother. Do you have thoughts sure, yeah. about him? I sort of feel like he's a tragic character. Yeah, I always, I, I often think of him as a tragic character as, um, you know, he's the older brother, but he feels so much like the little brother, right? Like, even just as you described him, Aaron, Moshe's brother, you never would introduce Moshe as Aaron's brother. Ever, ever, right? And I remember, Brent, when I was, uh, so my, ba- this was my bat mitzvah, Parsha, um, uh-huh. and- Thank you. And I grew up at uh, Harvard um, Hillel and and in this particular minion that was called Worship and Study. And basically my whole childhood, it was it was really um, lost on me that these were like the academics of the century who were sitting every Shabbat uh, morning and discussing Torah. To me, it just sounded like a bunch of boring adults talking. But uh, <laughs> Because I didn't really know who was in the room, I got up there and I just made my case for Aaron at the age of 12. And uh, I held my own, my father and mother tell me, and I argued with, you know, some of the greatest minds. And I still feel the way I felt when I was 12 years old, which is that Aaron really gets the short end of the stick in this story in Chet HaEgel. And um, if you're willing, can I make the case to you? Sure, sure. Um and and the, the the but just so I understand the 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 argument you're advancing is that um that Aaron is a grander character than we give him credit for. Well, not exactly. Uh, I mean, he is grander than we give him credit for. But I'm more arguing that he's. Uh, I guess I wish I was arguing that, but I'm channeling my 12 year old self with a little bit uh, more experience and layers of sophistication. And I'm arguing that he's sort of a tragic character, but certainly an innocent character. Okay. All right. We, we, uh, so the idea, right. I, when we were in whatever grade we were in, we put him on trial and then I Uh made the case. And so I'm going to make the case for his innocence, but I'm also going to make the case for like, there's something really like hard about being Aaron. Yeah. Okay. So our Parsha is the Parsha right. where if you were ever going to condemn Aaron, this would be the Parsha, correct? Do you agree with me? Chet HaEgel? For sure. Chet HaEgel, sure. Okay. So just to fill uh, everyone in, 
Right. So Moshe is, Moshe is like having this unimaginably transcendent moment with Hashem, with God. And he's he's not eating or drinking for 40 days and he's receiving Torah. And all Moshe was tasked with was to kind of like hold down the fort. Right. Like just yep, yep. keep everyone alive. You ever get that instruction? Frequently, yes. <laughs> like literally, all you need to do is make sure that they're breathing and and uh, not arrested when I get home. So, so here we are. I'm going to take us to Shmot to Exodus um, chapter 32, and I'm going to start right at the beginning. Okay, so we know that Moshe is okay. on Har Sinai. Ve'yar ha'am ki voshesh Moshe le'redet min ha'har. Right, and they saw that Moshe was. Voshesh was delayed in, in coming down from the mountain. And, and the people gathered against all. How would you translate all? Certainly aggressive, right? All Aaron? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, they translated here against. That maybe seems a little too much towards um in because it could also be um in dialogue like they gathered in front of Aro, right maybe in an aggressive way but maybe just in a conversational way all right let's leave that open let's leave you're right let's leave that open i agree that the translation we have here of uh jps on sparia um, sort of, sort of closes the ambiguity. So we'll we'll reopen it all our own. But love kum lanu Elohim, right? Come on, get up and make us a god. Right? We don't know what has happened to him. Come make us a god. And this god, this is the god who could go before us and lead us because this fellow Moshe, Kize, Moshe Haish, right? We don't know where he is. So it's pretty intense. And uh, if I were if I were Aaron, if I was trying to understand Aaron's position, I would already be pretty sympathetic because the Am the people are being really aggressive and being, even if we leave all as an ambiguity, they're being aggressive, right? And they're being dismissive. And just the language of kizeh, right? Like this Moshe, like this guy who took us out of Egypt, as if they haven't already had, like stood as a nation at, at Har Sinai together. The whole thing just feels like really um, scary. If I were Moshe. Yeah. Okay. So what and, does he do? Yeah. You have okay. thoughts before we see his reaction. You can't you I want have to thoughts, but I think they might be tangential. So keep going. If they seem relevant, I'll jump back to them. Excellent. Okay. So I don't have much more to say except for this, that I want to talk to you about Moshe's uh, response. And I think that he's quick to think on his feet. Aaron, and he says to them, Parku. So, um, my my son is talking to me in the background. Um, will you read this verse for 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 us? Sure. Bayomer alehem Aaron, parku nizme hazahav asher beozne nashechem benechem ubenotechem vahaviu alai. Right. Um, 
And he said to them, Aaron did, take off or separate um, from the, the rings of gold that are um, on, on the ears of your wives and your children, uh, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Okay. Okay. So so now, now I'm vibing back into my 12-year-old self. And I wanted to focus on sort of the tragic nature of, Mo- of Aaron, but I'm sort of feeling back into his innocence that I argued for however many years ago, which is like, this is brilliant, right? Like, what does he do? And Rashi, of course, picks uh, picks this up. And Rashi, of course, is pulling on the Midrashic tradition. But he he basically like, and again, you have you have more um, therapeutic background than me. But like, it seems like like people are being aggressive. People are like really like rallying, and there's this like mob mentality. If 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 you read the first verse the way I do, and instead of saying like whoa guys you're so out of line like chill out or like find some respect he sort of buys himself some time and what rashi Uh argues is that by suggesting to them by the way it's interesting that rashi assumes that the people who gather or maybe rashi doesn't assume this but i do (laughs) that the people who gather the men um and because that's who aaron responds to he says like Go get all that jewelry from your wives and your son and your children and your daughters. And Rashi says, like, that's buying himself some time because the women aren't going to part easily with their jewelry. This is jewelry that they took from Egypt. This is jewelry that they've had. This is like very sentimental stuff to them. So basically, Aaron's sending them to do this to write to to sort of buy himself some time because he knows, of course, it doesn't work this way. But he knows that were they to ask their wives for their jewelry, their wives would be like, whoa, 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 I'm not giving up on that. And that's going to give Aaron some time and also just diffuse the situation. What do you think? So, so now here's, this is what I was thinking of before, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure this, I'm not sure where to go with this, right? So the, um, the original complaint that the people bring to Aaron they say, Asulanu um, Elohim, right? And on the one hand, obviously we read Elohim and the rest of the story suggests that Elohim is God, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But we can also read Elohim and there's elsewhere in the text where Elohim actually in the plural means judges or leaders, or it doesn't refer to a, div- a divinity, but it refers to, to the judges. And part of what strikes me is that to the extent that the people understood, and we understand that there's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's the, the Am Yisrael, and Moshe operates in some way as an intermediary in between them, right? I'm wondering in that initial complaint is, did were the people saying we're missing God and we need a new God, or in some ways more congruent with the narrative thrust is what the people are saying. We're missing that intermediary. We don't have, God is still God. Okay, fine. But we never were accessing God directly. We were accessing God through Moshe. Moshe is God. Now we need different Elohim. We need different intermediaries. Yeah. I mean, I think if that's the case, if that's the case, 
then then Aaron either is right again. If you want to read against the way that I'm reading, then either Aaron is over over excited to right because he create he brings the mold right. So he's definitely like by the time his his like let's buy myself some time by telling them to go fight with their wives over jewelry plan doesn't doesn't work because they're right. like no no forget by the time we get to verse four right. Right, right. Aaron's like, uh oh, okay, I'm all in here, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and like I and I remember, like it it feels damning that he, right, Bacheret, uh, that like that he's like using this cast in a mold, right? Like, okay, you like well, at this point, Aaron knows what he's doing. And but certainly by the end of verse four, right, it's impossible to read. Even if I wanted to read Elohim in verse one as referring to uh, earthly judges or intermediaries, by the time we get to there's no ambiguity there. He's talking about this as a God, as a divinity. Exactly, right? But, but you know, and our theme throughout our learning is always like, the the beauty of it is that you can play with right. We have a lot of interpretive choices before we get to verse four, right? And so, depending on the interpretive choices we make about what was the initial request, what was Aro's right. initial response, what went wrong after that interaction, that's all going to feed into how we read sort of the unambiguous term, the unambiguous terms and intentions in verse four. But here's what I yeah. want to suggest. And I want to both leave it open and and push forward with a particular interpretation, if you'll indulge me. By all means. Um, okay, great. Which is, um, which is that like, if this is sort of the the midpoint of Aaron, if this is like, if we think of him as a narrative arc, and this is the midpoint, yeah. then by looking at um, his beginning and what I'm going to call his spiritual and psychological end. Um, by seeing sort of how how complicated and sort of tragic those two beginning and end points are, it seems to me that it only makes sense to read this midpoint as as part of that narrative as something tragic. In other words, I'm suggesting that by looking backwards and forwards, we get perspective on our own that almost determines the story as tragic. What do you think? Come with yeah, me. Yeah, I mean. I Come with me to his end. I, I'm with you. I can follow you on that. <laughs> All right, good. Walk with me and uh, and and let's see what you think after we see his end. So I want to call his end. I'm going to take us to Vayikra. Okay, I'm going to take us to Leviticus and chapter 10. And, okay. I, and I think that um, Aaron's most tragic moment is, of course, the death of his sons. Sure. The Davin Avihu, right? And I think um, without telling that whole story again here, right? Essentially, he, he has these two sons, and in their eagerness, they um, we could we could sort of parse this into all of its own ambiguities. But they offer they offer sort of an alien fire, not sort of that's what they do, and uh, it's either out of overzealousness or just sort of laziness or malicious intentions. We're not exactly sure, but. God decides this is not okay and has them consumed by the fire and they actually die. 
And uh, in one of what I would argue is the most powerful lines of all of Tanakh and the most insightful lines into sort of what it means, what the human condition is and what it means to suffer and what it means to give up, but also sort of say something as you're giving up. Moshe says to Aaron, look, this, this is what God, this is why God was doing this, right? And gives this whole explanation. And we're told by Yidom Aharon and Aaron was silent. And the reason why that's so powerful and so tragic is that what has Aaron's role been this whole time? The spokesperson. Exactly. So Aaron in his silence is not only expressing to us, the reader, um, the pain that he's in, but he's also mounting a pretty profound protest against God. Perhaps the most profound protest that Aaron is possible could possibly give, right? When Aaron, the spokesperson, goes silent, that's that's really, really telling and really powerful. And um, I want to quickly take us back to what we're talking about, right? So we're talking back to to jump before Chet HaEgon, before the Parsha that we're in, back to the beginning of Shmo, back to the beginning of Exodus. How does Aaron re-enter the picture? Um, at the scene of the Chedek. Right. Well, right. That Aaron comes back in the picture because Moshe says, like, Moshe says, right, he chavad peh, right? That my that I am slow of speech, right? Uchvad lashon, yeah. right? And I am slow of tongue, or I'm slow of tongue um, and yeah. slow of speech, right? And God says, don't worry about that. I'll bring your brother back. And so this whole time, right, this whole time, all Aaron has been is is Moshe's mouth. He doesn't have his own personality. He doesn't have his own perspective. And so when we think about how Aaron started and we think about how he ended, he starts as merely the spokesperson, right? Um, God responds to Moshe, Yadati ki daber, yadaber hu, right? I know that he can really speak. Um, and we know that Aaron ends by refusing to speak because God kills his sons. Then that, to me, casts our story here of Chet Egel in sharp relief that clearly, clearly we're watching a tragic character. And clearly the way to understand in my mind, Aaron is a character who like never had a chance. And so, um, and so to me, like, it was unfair. It was unfair that this happened to him. And it's unfair that he later gets blamed. Now, obviously, that doesn't leave us with an inspirational message, except to say that, like, some like the Torah allows us to have non-redemptive stories. And there's something powerful about that, that as Moshe and Miriam are these really inspiring redemptive stories, we have the contrast of Aaron, who, in my opinion, has no redemptive moment and really has no redemptive beginning or end. Hmm. I'm... I'm going to go very far afield to to possibly uh, hopefully come back. Um, I read 
a book a while ago um, called Thinking in Bets by uh, this woman, um, I think her name was Annie Duke, who was, if I'm remembering correctly, she's a professor in the um, Yale University MBA program. And she's also a champion uh, poker player. And she wrote this book called Thinking in Bets. And the essence of what she said, or at least the essence of what I took for it, is most people go through life thinking they're playing chess, right? And in chess, you have control over all of the pieces. Everyone gets the same pieces. The winning or losing in a chess game is entirely a question of the skill of the player. But she goes on to argue, we're not playing chess. We're never playing chess. We're playing poker. In poker, there's a combination of skill and luck, right? And she sets up a spectrum, right? If you've got chess at one hand, that's all skill. And at the other hand, you have a game, um, you know, I forget what it's called, roulette, where you're just spinning the wheel and it's all luck. She says life is more like poker in that there are some aspects of luck, the hand you're given, and then there are some aspects of how you play that hand. And she goes on and talks about how you can go through life and have been, been given a, such a good hand, you think you're playing it well, but you've just gotten really lucky, right? The, you know, the equivalent of being born on third base and thinking you hit a home run. Totally. And, you know, and on the converse, you can be dealt a poor hand and have the skill to play it well. And I think that, and, and I think about that so much in, in life in general, right? What aspects of life are not in our control? Are they the question of just what gets drawn, what's got dealt to you out of the deck? And, but given what is dealt to you, how do you play it? A good player can play a, you know, I don't know, a three and an eight well. And a lousy player might just get dealt a pair of aces and just get really lucky. Aaron seems to have been dealt some hard hands here, right? He doesn't seem to have been dealt yes. a great set of cards to begin with. Correct. And I, I am with you in that he's, you know, that there's a tragic aspect in that he didn't get, he didn't get dealt a great hand of cards to begin with. But I can see him and I see it most clearly in, um, uh, in, in the way you play out his response to the people organizing around Feta Egel, of trying to play the hand he was dealt well. And I think I actually find some nobility in there, right? That there's a nobility in that effort, um, even as it's a failure. It's not a capitulation to fate. It's not a... Um, it, it is a forward-moving thought, right? And I'm thinking, I think it was the Sfat HaEmet, or at least I think I learned this from the Sfat HaEmet, <coughs> I'm sure drawing from an earlier source, that the face of Yaakov um, is engraved in the Kisei Kavod, right? That Jacob is the greatest of the patriarchs. And actually, Jacob's a pretty complicated character, right? Jacob is not an unambiguously positive character when you read how he, um, you know, how he treats his brother, how he does all sorts of things, how he treats Levon even. But Jacob was active. Jacob made effort. Jacob tried to make things happen. 
And I always thought that at some level, what the uh, what the Sfat Emmet was teaching was that the Holy One loved Jacob's energy, effort, trying to make things happen, even if sometimes he did the wrong thing here. And I see glimmers of that with our own. Our own maybe didn't handle um, this uh, this moment of the people organizing as well as he could have. I mean, I think that much is clear. But I'm also noticing he doesn't say, okay, fine, I give up, do whatever you want, right? He's trying to exercise control. He's bringing these molds. He's giving a plan. He's putting in an effort. And I think there's a nobility in that. Absolutely. Even as it fails. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the beauty. And that's why, Brent, I want to be learning our own with you on this Parsha because uh, he's tragic and he's noble and he's empathetic and uh, he's like one of our protagonists. And I think that's amazing. I think that the fact that we celebrate uh, a failed character or at least like what you were saying, like bad cards and not the best poker strategy. Like, and the fact that like, he's part of our family. He's part of our, our story. Um, and that we don't have to redeem him. Like so much of this world requires a redemptive story. It requires a happy ending, um, and requires that really, um, nobody is like, nobody is permanently pained. And I think that the the inclusion, and it comes down to inclusion, the inclusion of Aaron in our in our in our in our national myth, in our uh in our people's Torah is beautiful because it's just it's so clear, like no, they're like he he doesn't really have a happy story and he certainly doesn't have a happy ending and not because of his own efforts. You know, like this is, you're right. If any time there's a moment where Aaron's really trying, it's here and it still doesn't work out and that's okay. Yeah. And failure is okay. And, um, and, and tragic components of our, our, our story is okay and should be celebrated and should be, uh, we should, we should, so I guess, what I'm saying is my bracha for all of us on this Parsha is like, we should develop our comfort with Aaron and the Aaron energy in our lives and our world and our people. I, I, I support that. I want to offer as a, a, a friendly, um, uh, a friendly amendment to that. There's, um, so uh, this is a different, uh, not obviously Torah book. Uh, it's Bruce Springsteen's memoirs. And um, it turns out that it's really a memoir of his life in therapy. It's a, it's a remarkable book. But he has this scene where he's describing his relationship, his troubled relationship with his father. And he says something to the effect of, we decided between the two of us that our relationship was more than the history of our failures. And what I love about that mindset is that, never mind that, you know, Springsteen is this, you know, rock and roll megastar. He's a person who's got a troubled relationship with his father, as plenty of people do. And he's saying, the love I have for him and he has for me is greater than the failures in our relationship. Those failures are real. Those failures are painful. Those pe- those failures can't be ignored, but our love is greater than our failures. 
a relationship is more than our worst moments. And I feel like that's that's perhaps part of the blessing you're bringing. And Lord knows I need it. I suspect most people do. Yeah. Of remembering that my relationship with my partner, with my kids, with my friends, even my relationship with the Kuchibrihu is greater than the record of my failures in those relationships. Because I've screwed up in my relationship with my kids. I've screwed up in my relationship with my wife. I've screwed up in my relationship with the Kuchibrihu. And those screw-ups do not define the entirety of my relationship. That is the grace. That is the chen of the people in my life who love me. And I'd go so far as to say that is the that is the grace of, of the Holy One, that the Holy One loves me despite my screw-ups in the same way that you're inviting us to love Aaron despite his screw-ups. Beautiful. Brent, thank you so much. I love that amendment. And as always, you bring so much depth to my learning of the Parsha. And I'm so happy to have had this chance to learn from you. Same here. I'm always delighted to learn from you and even more delighted to bring it, not more delighted, but also delighted to bring in, um, uh, you know, philosophical insights from Bruce Springsteen. Yes. Lord knows we need it. <laughs> All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Be well. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha Podcast.